Well, good morning to all of you. I'm Camper Mundy, associate pastor, and it's my joy to wish you a Merry Christmas. Yes, Matt was right. We are in the Christmas season. It's hard to believe that it was just five days ago, uh, Christmas Day. But I'm wondering if any of you experience the same thing that I do, even though we are technically entering into the Christmas season, you experience some sort of post-Christmas blues. Anybody? Does that? A few hands? Okay. The rest of you just aren't being honest. <laughs> but because it's interesting. I, you know, I googled post-Christmas blues. It is amazing the number of articles that have been written, even some of the research that has been done about this phenomenon. And it, it, it affects kids. It affects adults. And you think of that anticipation. It's been building up for weeks, especially in our culture since Thanksgiving. But then there's a bit of, of a letdown. And it's, it's often confusing, hard to express. We have just celebrated something so amazing. Why, why do I feel a letdown? You see, this expectation and this an anticipation... This is something rooted so deep within us. It's something that we shouldn't ignore, something we shouldn't gloss over, but something that we should very carefully pay attention to because it speaks to the eternity of our hearts. It's a longing for something far beyond what we could ever find or put under any Christmas tree. A yearning for all things renewed, for all things made right. It's a yearning for the return of Jesus, his second advent. We celebrate his first coming, but we so deeply long for his second coming, the renewal of all things. But let me take you back to a Christmas morning in the 1970s. This was not my experience. Uh, it was the experience of a, a colleague of mine down in North Carolina. He was sharing this with me a, a few years ago. Not sure exactly which year it was, but uh, this colleague grew up the oldest of three boys. And of course, like all kids, looking forward to Christmas morning, anticipating, hoping, expectant, what would be under the tree? And of course, hoping that they had been good enough we're not on the naughty list, which meant there were some years they were a little more anxious than others. What if there was nothing under the tree and instead lumps of coal in their stockings? Well, this one particular Christmas morning, the boys woke up extra early, even before the sun got up. And with all the joy and the expectation, they rushed downstairs and to their horror, there was nothing under the Christmas tree. Nothing. Now you might just say Santa had overslept. But as I thought about that story and as the, fr the friend was uh, sharing it with me, I thought what would it be like for those three boys that morning with all that hope, all that anticipation, all that buildup, and to come and to find nothing. So what's it like What's it like when there is nothing under the Christmas tree? What's it like when the Christmas tree is barren? Well, I want us this morning to enter into the story of a woman that is very familiar 
with what it's like when there's nothing under the Christmas tree, when the Christmas tree is barren. We go through the, the Christmas story as we should, and of course our focus being on Mary and Joseph and, and Jesus. But there's also the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth. And this morning I want to take us into the life of Elizabeth. She understands what it's like when the Christmas tree is barren. And we find her story. It's in the first chapter of Luke's gospel. This morning we will be in Luke chapter 1, uh, verses 5 through 45. You'll find it if you're using the Pew Bible, uh, page 855. Now what I'm going to do is I'm going to read from verse 5. There will be a few times I will skip verses so that we can keep the focus on Elizabeth. I will take you with me. I will let you know uh, when I move ahead. Uh, but we'll begin in verse 5. But before we hear God's word, uh, let's go to him in prayer. We come to you this morning, our good and gracious God, you who have come and you who are coming back. And Lord, as we celebrate and also as we anticipate, as we, as we yearn, would you open your word this morning? Would you speak the truth of your gospel deep into our hearts would you shine the light of Christmas, of Christ, into our hearts that we might see and that we might believe? So help us to hear from you now. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So now I invite you to hear the word of God from Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 5. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now, while Zechariah was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty, According to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. For your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Verse 23. And when his time of service was ended, he went home. 
After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. Verse 31. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Verse 35. The angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. Verse 39. In those days Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country, to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby left in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb left for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And this is the word of the Lord. So the story of Elizabeth. Well, what do we know of Elizabeth? What do we find out about her in this text? Well, we, we learn immediately that she is married to Zechariah. Also, that she is from the priestly lineage of Aaron, the, the first high priest of Israel. She's a godly woman, her husband, a godly man. She is childless, beyond childbearing years. Or in the words of the scripture, advanced in years. Many commentators agree that she is possibly in her 70s at this point. In fact, it's interesting to note that the most emphasized characteristic of Elizabeth is her barrenness, that she is infertile, that she is unable to have children. You see, in the span of just a handful of verses, eight times Luke refers to Elizabeth's barrenness. Now, in the first century, barrenness, the, the inability to have children, was a tragic situation. Tragic. There, there were profound economic and social implications. Economic. Because parents relied on children for financial support as they got older. That's how retirement worked then. There, there were no retirement funds. People raised their children, their children grew up, and as their parents aged, the children took care of their parents. And those children had children. 
who would then grow up and take care of their parents. And that's how it worked. And here is a couple in their 70s with no child at all. So economic uncertainty, but also the this, this social unrest. Because childless, childlessness was considered a disgrace. In the first century, fertility was often associated with divine blessing, while infertility was thought to reflect divine disapproval. And even though Luke makes clear that her barrenness is not due to divine disapproval, in verse 25, Elizabeth refers to her own barrenness as my reproach, my disgrace among the people. And then, of course, there's the heartache. The personal disappointment of not being able to have a child. Now, my wife Heather and I are familiar with this particular heartache. We were married for nearly 11 years before our first child was born. And it's not that we were trying to have children each of those years, but, but for us, there were several years of wondering and waiting. A long, painful season of barrenness marked by disappointment, month after month, year after year. But while for us it was a few years, for Elizabeth and Zechariah it was several decades, decade after decade after decade after decade. Decades of heartache, decades of economic uncertainty, decades of social awkwardness. Well, what about you? As you come here this morning, as we move toward the end of another year, what are your particular places of barrenness? Because we all have them, one kind or another. What, what are the, the difficult the disappointing, the discouraging places in your life? What are the places of loss? The barren places that when you are still, when you are quiet, when you are not distracted, you feel the depth of their pain and suffering. In other words, what presents aren't under your Christmas tree? You see, barrenness is real. Now, we, we often like to just gloss over it. If I'm a good Christian, don't I just suck it up, put on a, a happy face? I, I, I need to put a good foot forward, a good front. But we shouldn't deny the reality of barrenness. It's real, and it's really painful. It affects our lives. It affects our relationships. But barrenness is not the end of the story. In the midst of the very real places of pain and suffering in our lives, we are always confronted with that reality, and we are also always confronted with a question. Will I trust God? Will I trust God? Elizabeth, she is confronted with this question year after year, decade after decade. Take a look, verses 6 and 7. And remember, this is Elizabeth before she conceived. This is Elizabeth before she had any idea that she ever would conceive and give birth to a son. Verses 6 and 7. 
And they, Zechariah and Elizabeth, were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now, first off, I want you to note that Luke makes clear that their barrenness is not due to divine disfavor. Instead, Luke points out that Elizabeth and her husband are both righteous before God. Now, we could easily misread this text and say, finally, they have been righteous enough. Finally, they have done enough good to warrant God's gift to them. A prosperity gospel. That is not it. Now, we could also read into this righteous before God and, and say, well, well, did they live morally perfect lives? No, they didn't. But they love God. And by grace, they follow him. Growing in the, in the rhythm of, of the Christian life, growing in, in repentance and faith and a trusting obedience. Again, year after year, decade after decade. Repentance, faith, and a trusting obedience. Elizabeth and Zechariah are righteous before God because they trust him. Their faith is in him. They believe that his plans, that his promises, that his provisions are good. Even when they can't see, they believe that ultimately they are good. And though they have these very real places of pain and suffering, they believe that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. Not that all things are good, but that God uses all things for good. Now maybe, uh, as we're considering this couple, uh, considering the barrenness of Elizabeth and Zechariah, maybe you have been reminded of another couple in the Bible, in the Old Testament, another couple who was both barren and beyond childbearing years. In fact, the only other couple that we meet in Scripture that is both barren and beyond childbearing years, Abraham and Sarah. And what do we know about being rightly related to God because of them? Well, we go to Romans. The Apostle Paul, he explains that the righteousness of God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. And he goes on to point out that in Genesis it states, Abraham believed God, he believed, he trusted God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, is the righteousness of God. Being right with God comes through faith in God's word. And God's word is most clearly expressed in Jesus. The one whose advent we remember each year. The one whose coming we celebrate at Christmas. God with us. But do we take God at his word? In our, in our very real places of pain and suffering, and in particular those, those places of silent suffering, do, do you look to Jesus and trust him? I, I remember a, a few years ago, Heather and I were watching a movie. We did not yet have children at this point, and in the film there was a couple struggling with infertility. And I, I remember when the husband, having wrestled with God, 
uh, turning to his wife and saying, if the Lord never gives us children, will you still love him? Will you still trust him? And of course, given our situation at that time, it was a very pointed question for us. But then I realized that is a question for all of us. Because again, we all have places of barrenness. And in those places, will we look to Jesus? Will we trust him? Will we still love him? So you fill in the blank. If the Lord never gives you blank, will you still love him? Will you still trust him? There are very hard places of pain. I think of, for many, maybe health or finances, relationships, broken, if not broken, very strained, career, huge career disappointments. What are, what are those places? Anything that's disappointment or a struggle, will you trust him? Well, Elizabeth answered yes, and she answered yes because she knew that barrenness was not the end of the story. And again, she knew this even before she ever had any idea that she would conceive and give birth to a son. Elizabeth knows that God is faithful. She believes his promises. She trusts that he is the only one who can ultimately bring True hope, everlasting peace. And she knows that he would do so by his wounds. She knows the God of Isaiah 53. She trusts in the suffering servant. The suffering servant who would take our sin upon himself, embracing a barrenness far greater than any we could ever imagine, so that we would not be barren forever. Elizabeth knows that the Lord God will usher in salvation for all who put their trust in him. Luke's account unfolds. We've got this great moment. We learn that both Elizabeth, in her old age, beyond childbearing years, Elizabeth and her unwed teenage cousin Mary... They're both pregnant. Both have conceived according to God's promise. Both have conceived the impossible. And then, of course, the climax of that moment. When Elizabeth and, and Mary uh, come together, when Mary pays Elizabeth a visit, verses uh, 39 to 45, Mary rushes in, Elizabeth overjoyed to see Mary, and not only Elizabeth overjoyed, but the baby in her womb jumping for joy. And then filled with the Holy Spirit, Elizabeth exclaims, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. And blessed is she who has believed that the Lord would fulfill his promise to her. And then Elizabeth learns that the name of Mary's child 
The name of her Lord, the name of her Savior is Jesus. You know, as I've been reflecting on the experience of, of Elizabeth, one of the things that has, has struck me, and really an amazing thing, is that our places of barrenness really become fertile soil for growth in God's grace as we trust in Jesus, the master gardener. And as I, I was thinking about this, I was reminded of when we first, when Heather and I first moved here five and a half years ago, uh, we bought a house and it really didn't come with a yard. It came with kind of a dirt pit. Uh, it is a horrible yard. I mean, there was dirt all over the place, except for the places that were weeds. So what do you have to do with that? Well, first thing you got to do is you got to kill the weeds, which then means it looks even worse. At least the weeds kind of covered it up, but now it is all dirt. And so we aerated the yard and then had seed spread and fertilized and watered, and I wasn't very hopeful, and, uh, but water, sun, water, sun. And I began to notice something that I had never noticed before. And it was the places, the places that the grass, that the seed was taking the deepest root, was the places where it had been tilled up, were the pockets of emptiness, of barrenness. That is where the seed was taking the deepest root. Now, is my yard perfect? No, by no means. But it is growing. And the same is for us. Our places of barrenness become fertile soil for growth in God's grace as we trust in Him, as we trust in Jesus, the master gardener of our lives. Jesus says, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in barrenness. Not that he will answer every prayer as we would like it answered in this life. He does answer every prayer in a way that is best for us. And he will answer every prayer beyond our wildest dreams in the life to come when he returns. And that's why the Apostle Paul would declare, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. Not worth comparing at all to the great coming glory to be revealed in us. Now, Paul doesn't dismiss pain and suffering. This is not an evangelical gloss over at all. If you know anything about Paul's life, you know that he had his abundant share of pain and suffering. And here he's just putting it into perspective. Our places of pain and suffering, again, they are real. And for some of you, I know some of your stories, at least bits of them. I know some of those places of pain. Some of the broken relationships, or at least the very strained, intense ones. For some, the career disappointments. It's not going like you'd hoped. For others, the real struggle financially. And of course, for many, the struggles with health. The struggles with loss. And I want to remind you, I want to remind all of us, that barrenness is not the end of the story. 
So what is? What is the end of the story? Well, we get a glimpse of it, and actually we already got a glimpse of it yesterday evening at the wedding. Looking ahead, and in fact, when we were pointed to the last book of the Bible, to Revelation, and in particular, Revelation 21, where the Apostle John sees beauty, high beauty, far beyond what he or we could ever imagine. John gets a glimpse at the end of the story, and he sees a new heaven and a new earth. That God is dwelling with his people in perfect peace, in perfect joy, in perfect harmony, in shalom. Where every tear is wiped away. Where death is no more. Where there is, is no more mourning or crying or pain. And not only does he catch a glimpse, but he hears the king declare, Behold, I am making all things new. Behold, I am renewing all things. And then Revelation ends with Jesus declaring, I am coming. I am coming. I am coming. Three times he says it. Three exclamation points. I am coming back. He's referring to his second coming. The second advent. And friends, that is our deepest longing. More than anything under a Christmas tree, Jesus' second advent is our deepest yearning. That is what is crying out deep in our souls, come back, come back. Well, let me conclude with this from J.R.R. Tolkien, which I figured was appropriate since uh, The Hobbit just came out. Some box office, box office records. But prior to that, of course, the, the Lord of the Rings trilogy. And if you've read the books, the final book in the trilogy, Return of the King, uh, we find a time when, when the people, they're awaiting the king's return. The king who will make all things right. But before his return, there's this long season of, of wondering and waiting, of barrenness. And during this time, uh, the hobbits, Sam and Frodo, they are on a seemingly impossible journey, and they're losing hope. Now, while they're taking a break in this long, dark journey, a time comes when Frodo is napping, and Sam is sitting there, looking up into the darkness. And this is the narrator's commentary on Sam. There, peeping among the cloud rack, Above a dark tower, high, high up in the mountains, Sam saw a white star twinkle for a while. The beauty of it smote his heart as he looked up out of the barren, forsaken land, and hope returned to him. For like a shaft, clear and cold, the thought pierced him that in the end the shadow was only a small and passing thing. There was light and high beauty forever beyond its reach. Light and high beauty forever beyond its reach. Well, my friends, as we have left another Christmas morning, another Christmas day, as we face our own experience of the post-Christmas blues, 
What will you fix your eyes on? The eyes of your heart, what are they honing in on? Will you fix your eyes on on the presence under the tree that you can gather, that you can grasp for? Are you going to fix your eyes on what's not, what wasn't under the tree? Well, rather than looking under the tree, look to the star at the top of it. The star that once stood over a manger and still, this day, right now, still points us to Him, to Jesus, the one who is coming to make all things right. As we leave another Advent season, let us not only celebrate His first Advent, the first coming of Christ, but let's also anticipate His second coming, His second Advent. When he will return, when he will renew all things. When all sad things will come untrue. As we head into a new year with the Apostle John, at the end of Revelation, let us be true to our heart's cry and pray, Come, Lord Jesus, come. And so let's do that right now. Oh, Lord Jesus, yes, with the Apostle John, we cry out, come. And we thank you. We thank you that you have come. That you are Emmanuel, God with us. And that we know your presence now by the power of your indwelling spirit. That you open the eyes of our hearts to see and believe But oh, how we long for your return. And so we pray to you, our Redeemer King, come. Come quickly. And as we wait, fill us with hope that we might trust in you. And we give you thanks in all of this. In your name, Lord Jesus.